At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sunday evening edition of the pod. Hopefully delirium is not quite set in for me yet with recording my third podcast of the day. Biggest news for me is we have spun off the COVID-19 pod into a different podcast. However, it's going to remain here until the link goes up on iTunes. It takes like five or six days to get a new podcast to show up on iTunes. But I am tweeting that out. You can uh, paste the RSS feed into your podcast player to subscribe there. We greatly appreciate that. But we will keep making it available here for probably the next, I would say, three, four days or so. But I certainly encourage you to listen to that, which is at the end of this uh, right here, and tell your friends uh, about it. We're putting in a lot of work on that. Me and Ben, the idea is basically you listen to our pod for 30 minutes we've done hours of research you don't have to do that hours of research it's much more efficient than watching a bunch of news which isn't very efficient or accurate many a time or obsessing about it and reading all this stuff we are taking care of that for you whether it's the latest research whether it's a worldwide news news in the u.s uh all that we are trying to be your the place you can go to get your coronavirus news and then go about your day in a more normal fashion and danny your latest podcast was your latest podcast was seth yes yeah yeah so that that was real gm radio that came out on friday i believe so let's get started here we talked about the worst contracts in the nba last week so now we'll talk about the best um there aren't many. <laughs> no, I mean, well, well, part part of that is because you and I have specific rules on this, that contracts that are artificially lowered by rule, we do not include. So, for example, the most surplus value, if you want to think about it in the, the terms that we usually use of like, how much is the player worth versus how much is he paid? A lot of those are max contracts because a player making 25, 30 or 35% of the of, of the salary cap for certain players, the LeBron Jameses, the Giannis's of the world, that is less than they're worth. It's not fair to include those because the list would be a lot of those. And then the other ones that are artificially limited are rookie scale contracts. So Luka Doncic and Zion and those, those are artificially limited. They can't be negotiated. So that actually not only does it take out, you know, max caliber players, but it also takes out players who aren't max caliber who are on max contracts. And then the rookie scale takes out a big portion of the league too. So yeah, it does it does slim the field a lot, and also just the structure of the league right now slims it even more. So yeah, there there are we're not talking about st- like the Steph Curry contract back when he had his ankle screwed up or anything like that. These are just more reasonable contracts. Are the best contracts in the league that fit the bill? Yeah, and part of the reason why we're doing it this way is because as a front office, you sign someone to a max contract. You know, you don't really deserve credit for that. No necessarily I mean, or like maybe, drafting maybe you, zion number one overall you know that sort of that sort yeah. of thing yeah i mean drafting and you know identifying i mean this is 
identifying contracts, negotiating contracts. I mean, like if it's a no-brainer max, okay. If it's a rookie scale, okay. Like you didn't really have to do a ton of negotiating there. Your negotiation comes in when you're in between those polls. Part of the reason why we also have fewer of these right now is the 2018 offseason. You recall that basically no one had cap space. So many teams were very close to the tax. The cap did not go up as much as expected. That season also didn't go up as much as expected in the 2017 season because of the orgy that was the 2016 offseason. And so this is the way we do it is if it only really has a year remaining on the contract where it's not as interesting to talk about we're trying to think of who has locked in production for a long time here and so right and, and also worth the, noting yeah. that we're looking starting with the 2020 slash 21 season we're kind of you know yeah. looking looking totally forward so what would what we're counting as an expiring contract is not somebody who's a free agent this summer it's somebody who will be a free agent in 21 yeah and so there are a lot of very good contracts that are expiring uh at that point in the summer of 2021 not so many good contracts that are expiring this uh, offseason and so it really you're limiting it with in terms of these have got to be contracts that were you know three or more years essentially uh that were signed last offseason but there are still some of those um well also yeah go ahead something else i want to note is and this won't come up that often but theoretically like the bird rights that you have at the end of that is something that i cared about a little bit so if it's a contract that for whatever reason you only have like non-bird or something like it you know it, it that's more on the the kind of the expiring ones that it, it was more material yeah. but or but also like you know so like for example just to bring something up like alex caruso when his contract expires 2.8 million expiring you know reasonable deal but he's an unrestricted free agent if he were restricted that would be some value on the contract so there are a couple of guys but you didn't want to emphasize i'll bring up a few minimum players but they're kind sure. of in their own conversation yeah i mean and we're also not looking at guys who are on their first contracts i mean that that again you know you're, anyone that you get there that's really more of a scouting thing than a negotiation thing and you know, maybe the length of it can be it sometimes but you know we're not gonna look at Devonte graham who you know he was a captive audience right you drafted him so guys are on their first contracts uh, again that's not really what we're trying to drill down to here and so you look at it there really are most of these contracts as we'll see are for players who are re-signing with their previous team uh or signed extensions as a restricted free agent those are, are, are where a lot of these uh, are going to come from which as they should right like you're you're giving an extension or maybe a few veteran extensions although as we talked about in the bad contracts probably more veteran extensions work out poorly for the teams uh than work out well if you look at how good those contracts are by the end so there's a, a pretty limited pool here uh of contracts to choose from maybe only one or two per team of just and it, but i think what's obvious to me here is there are very few of these contracts where this contract was signed as a result of changing teams to this team yeah there are some players that have changed teams after these contracts were signed yeah, well, they, they might have got traded but yeah. but they didn't sign as it an restricted free agent with a new team yeah that's that's very true um i don't think that's i don't think that's the case oh that's the case for one of mine but not a top tier one for like just one that i thought was worth mentioning and i think he's the only one uh maybe a second there's there are two i guess maybe um and one more thing too just the way that the league is set up you're naturally going to have more quote-unquote bad contracts within this group of non-max non-rookie then you're going to have good contracts because with salaries artificially limited 
for the absolute best players now some max contracts obviously overpay guys uh but uh and then salaries artificially limited for players at the bottom there's an artificially large amount of money that goes to these players who are not on rookie scale deals not on their first contracts and are not uh on max contracts they just those players generally just are going to get overpaid and i think it's important to remember that in the lens of say you know someone like a harrison barnes type of player who it's almost fair to compare him more to other his contracts to contracts that are not max and not rookie to talk about whether that was a good signing or not if because if you're a team like sacramento you don't necessarily have the option of spending your money either on a max player and you can only spend so much money on on rookie contracts so it, it does as we talk about this it's important to remember this for decision making to think about okay yeah maybe you did overpay by three or four million dollars in unrestricted free agency for this player on a long-term deal but you kind of have to compare like to like that's one school of thought at least right and i think something to mention about like my list of the the best contracts is we're really thinning out the quality of player here like there aren't any all nba i don't think there are any all nba players like not even like right now but any all nba players in their past i think maybe there are a couple of like stray all-star appearances but not that many it's it's not that group of player they're they're in other conversations also we should note at least for me it was max or near max that were straight so oh if this guy took like 10 like ten thousand dollars or you know like some of those contracts that aren't technically yeah, max yeah nikola Jokic is slightly less than the max uh Giannis and gobert they end in 2021 so i wouldn't have looked at them anyway those are technically less than the max but like pretty much the max as far as uh you know if you want to, or like draymond green under his old contract uh a lot of, a lot of those are or clay yeah like yeah yeah i mean green actually was significantly below. yeah it's That's it's, it's the spirit it's but. the spirit of the of the concept rather than the actual technical yeah. number also part of the reason we do it that way is i don't always i, I mean you're better at this but i don't always remember exactly which one is is where because remember that because of the way max contracts work it doesn't have it's not uniform every given year like oh this contract is definitely a max so it can fit yeah and another thing that's worth noting here too is at previous times when we've done this you had contracts from the summer of 2015 like jay crowder was an example of that where they're just everyone knew the cap was going up but they're just you couldn't spend the money until 2016 kicked in and you knew that the cap was going to go up by a huge percentage so you had all these contracts that were signed under the old cap the old cba those are all gone now after this year so that's again another indication of why there aren't these really nice contracts in the level that we are talking about so now that we have set the scene we'll take a little break and then we'll get to it man it is crazy to think that i've been working with helix sleep since 2015 and i think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners if you've never heard it before that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom and there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one size fits all they found the one formula the one mattress that was going to work for everyone my then girlfriend now wife and i ordered that mattress we ended up having to return it because hey guess what not everyone 
is the same and then she did some more research and found helix sleep we took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types and uh, helix offers 20 unique mattresses every sleeps differently and helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences hot or cold side sleeper back sleeper so take that helix sleep quiz find your perfect mattress in under two minutes and it's shipped straight to your door free of charge it's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home you're like well how should i order this if i can't sleep I'm like yeah you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where do i take my shoes off do i leave my shoes on but then my feet kind of hang off the bed because i don't want to put my shoes on the bed and is it weird that i'm laying here for more than 30 seconds you can't tell anything under those circumstances you might as well just order it get it sent to your house get that 100 night trial they're 10 to 15 year warranty depending on the model and there's never been a better time to try a helix sleep mattress because they are offering 20 percent off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace easier slash capspace we talk about all the time here on the program that's helixsleep.com slash capspace this is their best offer yet i can attest to that since i've been working with them for nine years and it won't last long with helix better sleep starts now don't forget that slash capspace url to let them know that you came from us man i just love american giant just an amazing clothing company i was reminded again of how much i love it when i drove from california to montana over the all-star break and you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold particularly when it starts off warm in the bay and then we get into some really cold areas you're like well i don't want to wear like my jacket in the car but then i get out to fill gas I'm going to be freezing, but the American Giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice heavy material that'll keep you warm, it's not too hot as well. So I was able to wear it in the car, not be too hot, step out of the car and still be warm enough when I was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that I didn't feel like I needed my jacket, even when it was cold outside. These things are amazingly durable. I proposed to my wife wearing an American Giant hoodie in the Grand Canyon almost seven years ago. I still own that same hoodie. I still wear it constantly. And American Giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout you remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us okay so let's just go through our list of candidates we'll just uh ping pong back and forth here and then we'll each pick uh, our top three the one i want to start with is a player tj warren who james jones traded as a negative value contract less than a year ago but tj warren after this season has remaining two years and 24.4 million totally reasonable contract he has proven himself more in indiana this year on a, on a successful team, more successful than those Suns were. I thought he did a nice job defensively, fit in well offensively in such a tumultuous season for them in terms of personnel because Old Depot was coming back and Brogdon's missed a bunch of times. So TJ Warren, about $12 million a year. That's a really nice contract. 
Yeah, he's uh, 10.8 this year, then gets the 8% raises, uh, 11.8 next year, and 12.7 the year after that, uh, finishing in 22. And they'll have uh, be able to extend him or have full bird rights on him as well. In fact, he would be extension eligible as soon as this offseason. Yeah, because the anniversary. Marcus Smart uh, came to mind for me. This is one where in the summer of 2018, I actually thought that was a lot of money for him. And he's gotten better as an offensive player. I was very worried about him, how limited he was. Uh, and that that was it wasn't a rookie scale extension but he was in restricted free agency they ended up giving him four years 50 million uh, that leaves him with 13.5 next year and 14.3 the year after that another player uh potentially eligible for an extension um yeah smart is just i mean even if he's coming off the bench he's perfectly capable to me of starting he's got some passing ability as a pick and roll ball handler he can't finish it all but he can guard just about everybody at most positions and do a very very good job of it as well well and, and then the he, other huge thing is his jump shot getting more reliable i mean i'm still yeah. i'm still not all the way there but it is significant i have significantly more faith in it than i did before so if you combine yeah. defensive versatility you know more of like a complementary ball handle and then shot like shot making that makes him a more versatile overall player that makes him fit in more places so yeah marcus smart is a, is a really good pick the first of the 2019 signings for me on this list um moxie kleba kleba three years 26 million and something that I, you hope it doesn't take place but makes the contract better is that the final year of that three is nine million totally non-guaranteed so that means if something happens you can get out of that last year based on where contracts are and where they're going i don't think dallas will want to do that he is a a really nice big to have in the rotation because he can space the floor he can also block some shots and at the price that you're getting Klee before you know less than 10 million a year it doesn't he doesn't have to start you're not paying him starter money and i think that makes him even more valuable yeah and it, his defensive versatility to switch get out on the floor as well not a high usage guy but a guy who has very few weaknesses i think he could be a quality starter. he played more minutes this year he can either start or come off the bench uh, extremely valuable and that was uh, they used restricted free agency there he was coming off a, a deal as a a, a two-year deal as an undrafted free agent so uh, they're able to use the restricted free agent process and his teammate dorian finney smith another one yep a three-year 12 million dollar deal that ends in the summer of 2022 as well and he's given them competent three and d play on the wing for four million a year that's uh, that's pretty outstanding since we're looking forward and not backward yusuf nurkic has missed this entire season and always twirling 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 towards freedom mm. sorry well done um yusuf nurkic looking forward two years 27.4 million only four million of that final season is guaranteed absolutely you know and with a broken with a broken bone the hope is that at, at some point he will come back and be 100 percent or close to it so you know there are concerns about where it's going but i mean to have a starting caliber center even if centers are less valuable and you know at, at, at moments he's been a top half starting center in the league for 13 million dollars a year especially with the with the the light guarantee on the final season that looks really good to me yeah i agree with you and i mean if he can he may not get back to the incredible level that he was at in the 18-19 season before that horrific injury but even to be a, a solid starting center at that money under contract that that's pretty good uh as he's got two-way ability as a center you know i think it, when healthy certainly a top 15 center the lone all-star 
on this list for me is DeMontis Sabonis. Yep. I I did not care for his signing. He's basically he makes 18.5. It doesn't even kick in his extension until the end of this year. But 18.5 the first three years, and then a bump up to 19.4 in the 23-24 season. So that goes out quite a bit. Hopefully, presumably, the cap will continue to rise over that faster than Sabonis's contract will, uh, at least by the end. We don't know what's going to happen for next year, at least. Uh, and yes, I didn't think he deserved to be an all-star, but I, I had him as a, I think, the number 10 center in the NBA. And that is, you know, I don't know that he's giving you an incredible amount of surplus value on a team that's really trying to like win a championship, but he's definitely a very solid player to get you into the playoffs and one of the best offensive centers certainly in basketball so especially to have him cost controlled and i mean i would say that he's a little bit underpaid by you know maybe a few million but again when we're talking this universe that we're comparing him to it's actually you know to just be even slightly underpaid makes you one of the best contracts i'll bring up his teammate and yep. in my opinion superior center miles turner three years 54 million remaining his is a, a flush 18 per season and the it it would be a, a, a discussion about whether Turner or Sabonis you would rather have on their contract because Sabonis having that extra year is really valuable, but I think Turner is both a better player and a more versatile one. You know, like that. You, yes. I think you could use him in a lot more places, and he can. He's defended his position with uh, reasonably well, and all that. So I, I, I like Turner better. But you know, it's a reasonable. A reasonable minds can reasonable minds can differ there. Um, unless you have some. Do you have something you want to say on Turner? Or no, no. I think I think you covered it. I'll, I'll turn to Robert Covington. Long talked about as one of the better contracts in the NBA. Part of why Houston gave up both Clint Capella and its first round pick this year to get him. 12 million next year, 13 million the year after that. And you'll recall the circumstances under which he signed this contract. Philly essentially gave him a balloon payment of $15 million in a year when he was only going to be making like just over a million dollars. And so it really was kind of more like a four-year $60 million extension, but they bumped it with the renegotiate and extend. They put about $15 million of that in the first year, and then that's what enabled it to be so much cheaper going forward. And obviously, that's what his cap number is going to be, uh, and it gave him a lot of trade value. That's part of why they were able to move him for Jimmy Butler. So Covington still uh, one of the better help defenders from the wing position in the league, shoots his position pretty well, and... Uh, quality starter play and and then some i would say uh for 12 million dollars a year is very solid absolutely my next one will be patrick beverly beverly Ooh, that's interesting this is our first disagreement two years 27.7 million totally reasonable i i think that he is a little he's a little bit overrated as a as a value contract because this has came up when we did the point guard rankings he doesn't do the most important thing for a point guard of like really creating good shots for himself and others but he's a wonderful defender can defend multiple positions and so i i you know i don't think he's like he's not one of my contenders to like get the top spot but he is a positive value contract to me yeah you know i'm i'm not even sure he's a positive value contract for this year and and this is his age 31 season yeah, he did shoot it pretty well from three this year. I remembered him being a little lower. He was at 38%. Not a huge volume guy, though. Uh, I mean, I do like what he can do defensively, as you mentioned. He does foul a lot, though, which is something that, that he probably should get dinged for a little bit more. And especially considering his health, 
which has been intermittent this year he's had a, a number of knee issues previously so i just worry about him especially a small guard at 31 he's basically defaulted into solely a three-point shooter at this point in time where he used to be back in his houston days it could actually play some backup point guard um which he's not really doing anymore now offensively so i i'm i'm a little more worried about that i think that has a i think he's like about right this year and that it could get ugly over the next couple of years um but i i think we're maybe your standards are just there's there's not a lot of great contracts out there <laughs> um so i understand why you thought i thought about him and i was like eh, i'm a little worried about him uh being 31 at his size I'll, um, I'll i'll mention another one that i had some real trouble with again not in that top tier but i wonder a lot about justice winslow i mean justice winslow if he were healthy yeah. unambiguously he was in my could end up i had a a three guys that i thought like were decent bets to end up being good contracts but you can't quite say that they are right now and he was in that category winslow has two years remaining each one 13 and a big part of what makes the what what helps here and usually with good contracts you know it's kind of sort of like the idea of team options are less valuable if you if the player's on a really good contract because you're just going to pick it up but winslow has a second year team option and so if the back issue becomes something that is pervasive and they can't really deal with then memphis or whoever they trade him to should they want to do that we'll we'll have to deal with that so yeah i i had him in kind of the yeah, that, that an, another tier down but also like i mean if if you get rotation caliber or even starting caliber minutes from him at 13 million dollars a year that's huge his teammate dylan brooks is yep. another one that came to mind for me now his overall efficiency to me has been a little bit lacking but he shot it well from three i think as they continued to evolve as an offense his role can maybe be minimized a, a little bit and but. he's been better defensively this year than i anticipated you know still not amazing yes. i think there are times when there are times when it gets a little bit overstated but he's still capable and he can get better yeah, yeah i mean he, he definitely is a foul magnet but you know as as a wing defender you know i think he's around average he can hold his own in some of those matchups and then uh i think he'll be overqualified as a second wing defender once uh winslow is able to take a spot in the rotation and then you know he does have some ball skills he can create shots late in the clock even if it's not incredibly efficient and his three-point shooting is an asset so i i thought he is going to be in a position to provide some quality starter play it's possible his shooting could drop off and hurt that but i i thought the the grizz got a pretty good deal on that extension yeah i agree uh i had two that i wanted to ask you about kind of calibrator questions and it's incidentally their former teammates start with malcolm brogdon brogdon three years 65 million remaining to me if, if you could guarantee that he was going to stay healthy definitely positive value contract i like brogdon a lot i love how he can fit in with different good players and he was a he was a positive for the pacers when he was on the floor however there are very real injury concerns with brogdon part of why he fell in the draft possibly part of why milwaukee let him go so i wanted to see how you felt about that you know a little bit over 20 million a year for brogdon yeah I know it's the, the number 14 point guard, high-end starter. I thought he's about right. I don't think he's necessarily going to get that much better. And then the health considerations as well. I, I, I think he's a fine contract, but I wouldn't quite go so far as to say it's a good one. Okay, then the other calibrator, former teammate Brooke Lopez. Lopez, I mean, three years, 40 million. The, the easy way to say it was like, well, shit, yeah. But he's also 32, basically. And so, and he... he I mean, he's a mountain, so the mountain part won't won't age poorly. But if yeah. the shooting, you know, he had some some shooting struggles this year, and I mean, getting into his mid thirties, you could see that yeah. turning. Splash Splash Mountain is now just mountain uh, until further notice with that three point shooting. 
So, so yeah, you, I don't know. Yeah, it, he's he's it re, he was a real challenge for me. So again, like those guys, I, I had I had kind of a separate group where it's like I'm still trying to figure out how I feel about it. And Aaron Gordon's kind of in that group too. Well, well, so quickly on Lopez. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think as long as he I mean, he's, I mean, I think he's given them you know the production of like a twenty million dollar a year player this Agreed. year. Agreed. So even and, without the shooting and, being where it was. Yeah, and he's still a, a solid offensive center as well. Um, it's just a question of how quickly it's going to fall off. But you know, I feel better about his deal than Beverly's. Uh, for example um and then actually before you move on his teammate george hill yep is having an unbelievable year nine million next year 10 million non-guaranteed the year after that which helps a lot um you know he's only playing 20 minutes a game but he's like right among the nba leaders in true shooting uh shown more off the bounce verve when it's been needed still a, a versatile defender um it's not gonna be in my top three but i think it's it i mean shockingly because I, I didn't think this would be the case but uh and a lot of what he's doing feels unsustainable especially at his age but there's a possibility that that turns into being pretty good and then if it doesn't they're protected with the non-guarantee certainly been worth more than the nine million this year yeah absolutely uh you're gonna move on to aaron gordon i had him in my could end up being good component but what did you like about his deal he's still incredibly young i mean that's with these some of these players who come in who come into the league you think oh you know they could they they're a cook cooked product or you know like he's been in the league now so this was his sixth season but gordon still he's 24 turns 25 in september and making about 18 million years two years 34.5 and he can defend both forward positions. I, I I wish he I wish I trusted his jump shot more. Career thirty two percent three point shooter. And this year, yeah, you, you wish you trusted it as much as he himself trusts his jump yes. shot. Yes, and I and so and and Gordon this year he took five point eight threes per hundred possessions. That's actually the lowest that he's had tied in the last four years. And he shot thirty percent. So and and you know some of that is scheme and everything else. But by getting yeah. a yeah, or or just the lack of other options, right? Maybe. Yeah, and, and also like I don't I don't love you know the way that he's being necessarily set up. I'm not the biggest fan of of their overall offensive you know the lack of shooting and everything else. But still like and so I think Gordon could defensively I think he's you know in a pretty good spot. He gets you know Jonathan Isaac next to him. He can take though he has some some more three assignments than you know maybe in an ideal world. But offensively I could imagine him doing a lot better as like a straight four somewhere else with real shooting around him. So yeah I I had a, yeah he's kind of in that same group at, with just Swinslow of it's it's a totally a reasonable contract and if he may, takes positive steps forward it'll be much better than that next year who, yeah and the the decline obviously helps him too who was who the third guy in your in that group for you Dejounte Murray interesting yeah that's that's reasonable I'm a little lower on him than you are yeah maybe so I I, I think he starts at 14 million goes up to 17.7 on that four-year 64 million dollar extension that he signed and this is his first year back up to the ACL I think he has shown meaningful improvement in his jump shot he also is playing with not a ton of spacing around him he plays a lot of his minutes with DeRozan that's been a pretty execrable pairing and I'd like to see what he could do as a pick and roll guy with the floor spaced a little bit more uh, if his jump shot continues to improve he, he does have athleticism and he's not, hasn't been the defensive force that he was before he hurt himself but that that can take a while to come back with these acl guys so i think it still has the potential to turn into something pretty good but we just don't know yet yeah we we, we don't um 
I had a few others that I thought are positives, but not like screaming good deals. So we, we don't have to really go through those. They're no, not. Well, I, I mean, I, I, there's a few more. I, how do you not uh, bring up Royce O'Neal? Right. I did. That was, that was the, yeah, Royce O'Neal. That was actually the one I was alluding to with this. Uh, four yeah, years. I, I can't, I can't let you go on here without uh, mentioning Royce O'Neal. Four years, 36 million. Also, that final season is only 2.5 million guaranteed, which if he ages poorly, that could be, that could be a, um, a nice way to kind of get out. You get the positive value while it's there. And then if, if things turn for three and D guys, they can have a really short window. O'Neal is older than a lot of guys who burst out. I, I like his contract. I also want to mention Seth Curry, another one of the Dallas 2019 signings. Three years, $24.5 million left after this year. For a bench guard, totally fine. And he's shooting, you know, if you need, if, he's not great defensively, but it, like he has his moments. And if you need him to close games, you can do that. I was wondering if you were going to include Wright, his teammate as well, another 2019 signing. No, both those guys I think are about right. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, here's one that uh, I think you missed. Uh, Jalen Brown. Yeah, yeah, Jalen, totally, totally fine with putting Jalen Brown on. Um, it's 103 million guaranteed over the next four years. I thought he played at a at least Eastern Conference All Star level. It still has a chance to get much better. I mean, averaged 20 points a game on good efficiency and is a above average defender at his position. And, and positional it, it, scarcity is hugely in his favor. Absolutely. So no, I think that's absolutely going to yeah. look like a value deal, even if it seemed like a lot. Now, I mean, the raises. It's pretty amazing how much these raises go up for some of these guys. I mean, he starts at 24 million and goes up to almost 30 million over the course of the, of the four-year deal. So that that you know, if he's making 30 million by the end, it, you hope that he would continue to grow into that. Uh, also, doesn't really have much of an injury history, which is good. Um, any others that you had? I will just mention that if we were including expiring contracts, the one who would who would be in this conversation for me is Josh Richardson. Richardson, 10.9 million for next year and then has a has an 11.6 million dollar player option barring catastrophe he will decline that player option and become an unrestricted free agent but richardson you know dead bang starter at 11 million who is going to get who who could still get better from this point i I think that's the best expiring contract in the league that fulfills our requirements spencer dinwiddie would be in there too i would say 11.5 i'd rather have richardson for 11 than dinwiddie for 11.5 but they're both damn good players yeah, I and mean, there's been talk of those guys getting traded for each other. I mean, mostly speculative, not not actual, real source rumors. Um, let me see if I got anyone else here. How about Will Barton? Well, Barton for me is another. Uh, he is functionally an expiring contract because he has that. Player oh, that's option. true. I forgot he had the player option. Yeah. Okay, forget it then. Yeah. Yeah, he was one of the few players who got any kind of a long term deal in the summer of 2018. Then he had the lost year that first year, and then this year all of a sudden he might have been Denver's second best player <laughs> this year. So if he continued to play at this level, yeah, then absolutely. it's an expiring contract. Uh, yeah, that's that's why I did. Yeah. That's why I didn't include him. I had him in the in the expiring tier. Um, let's. See see here some people might talk about him zach levine yeah makes 18 million a year uh i'm sorry no 19.5 the next two years already eligible for an extension amazingly i am lower on levine for a very specific reason it's that i think if he's running your show your show isn't very your sh- your offense isn't great and so i just don't put much value in that i think that if that he can be a yeah. gap and he's so bad defensively. so bad too. defensively and levine could we might we just might not see it for a while like he could be better as a smaller fish in a bigger pond but considering how much he hunts his jump shot i'm more skeptical on that now than i was when he came out of ucla um so i i I don't i don't love him i I think of him more as a as a modest four raiser than anything else and i would love to see him prove me wrong but he hasn't yet yeah 
Uh, what what about Bledsoe? I mean, Bledsoe, three years, fifty four yeah. million. Final years only guaranteed for a little under four million. I think that's for me. That's more of a totally reasonable contract rather than like a a real surplus value. But Bledsoe's a good player. Absolutely, it's more I think about how it would age. Uh, yes, for a guy who's pretty reliant on athleticism. I mean, I do think that the playoff foibles when we're talking about this probably come into it too much when you're just thinking about whether this is a guy who has value around the league at that number or yeah, not. And, and Bledsoe also, like, I, I'm i a little bit more skeptical of, you know, if he's the kind of the equivalent, the every down back equivalent of point guard, if he if he's the guy who has to create everything all the time, I think that, that that tones it down. But he's so good defensively that that really helps the Bucks too. I mean, he's not the reason the Bucks' defense is great, but he makes it. He helps. For sure. Okay, I think that's that's pretty much the group here. Give me your top three. I'm going to go, and this is such this is such an amazing turn considering what happened. I'm going to go TJ Warren, number three, guy who got traded as a negative value contract as a salary dump. I'm going to put him three. I'm going to put Marcus Smart at number two, and I'm going to put Robert Covington at number one. Yeah, that's interesting. How, how much do you weigh having only two years left versus some of these extension guys being four years out? That's I think having the four years, especially for the guys who are younger, it, it matters. It, it matters, but I, I value positional scarcity a lot, and there aren't wings sure. that have that kind of contract. And so, yeah, Sabonis, you could argue maybe he's a you know player plus contract is there, but you can find a center. You know, I think you can do other things there, and you just can't find wings for ten million dollars a year that are actually good. Yeah, I think you can also. I'm thinking about it too of just how much trade value does the guy have on this contract you know that that's and if I had to go down the list of all these players that we've talked about I think Jalen Brown would probably be number one that's reasonable especially considering there's some some uh bonus things there that could make it cheap that could change it yeah I mean yeah it does it can go up to as much as 115 million but pretty much all of those bonuses are like winning 49 games getting to the second round of the playoffs and then some like pretty high level in individual honors where if he hits it you'll be glad to pay it yeah so. that's that's and, and his contract is long yeah I, I you know what i'm gonna put brown i'll put him in the i'll put him in the poof. see i'm thinking now if i include him i should put him at one because i was gonna say oh put him between one two yeah but i know it just like it doesn't it's kind of a different sort of a thing yeah where it doesn't stick out to you as oh man this is just like such an awesome deal and you know it also could be that even if he because he just has the most upside of anyone in this group probably that we're talking about that even if he were making more he might still be number one it's not it's kind of more about the player and his age yeah than it necessarily is that he's on like some unbelievable number but it's also how far out it goes too in the getting going out four years well and going uh, out four years for him versus like Robert Covington's 29 right now like that the going yeah. out four years isn't nearly as valuable for him so yeah I I think I kind of want to put Jalen Brown as at numbers at zero and just kind of see him as a separate thing from this list but yeah I think you can make an yeah. argument that he's more valuable yeah because most of these players are just kind of competent players and I mean there is no Victor Oladipo making 20 million that there was a, a couple of years ago there's no Steph Curry like you were talking about there aren't these guys who signed extensions and really grew into things um you know Gobert and Giannis I mean technically the, those guys are, are expiring 21 so we're not considering them anymore so I mean a lot of it again goes back to this 2018 offseason and also I mean, the other thing too is just that the drafts that of these players who are on extensions now 15 16 not the most amazing drafts either yeah so that's a, that's another reason why uh i think you don't have 
those players where the the teams were able to make a bet on the guy and then he really blows up to being a, a big star Some, something else that i think is really striking is the the, the dichotomy between the 2019 ex, uh the, so the 2016 draftees who were extended so Jalen yeah. Brown and DeMontis Sabonis, both on this list. And, you know, theoretically, if Siakam were eligible, he might get a But again, he's a max contract that doesn't count. But then Buddy Heald, Jamal Murray, both we, we have problems with those. Um, Karis LeVert isn't really on either list. We, he just had such a weird year. I don't really well, know. Well, actually, I should include him on the could end up good. Sure. Yeah, that yeah. that's kind of that's kind of where he was for me. I mentioned I had him mentioned by we five uh, three years, fifty two point five million left, and then Dejan- yeah. and then Dejounte. So it is kind of amazing how that happens. So basically, everybody who signed a lucrative extension from that 2016 draft class is on either in the considered or whatever on one list or the other yeah well there just aren't that many deals that even go out that far right at this point and there aren't really likely to be that many this summer either in terms of long contracts maybe they'll end up being like some good deals for I think I think there will be I actually did a short a short thing on guys that I thought could could join this list Uh, I'll give you I'll give you the three that I thought of Um, all are restricted free agents so I think they could be especially if the market gets tighter which I think it will Jakob Pertl just if he ends up whatever he ends up signing Malik Beasley I don't I think he might end up getting paid by Minnesota, but I, I like his game. And then D'Anthony Melton. I think it's a possibility that the market is just not as robust for him. And so maybe Memphis yes. gets another deal. Yeah, Melton. I mean, I could see him in like the $5 million a year range uh, as a as a third guard giving you pretty good production. His shot's got to come around. But um, yeah, and also when you think about, we're talking about deals that had to be at least three years. A three-year deal for basically any unrestricted free agent, most of those guys are going to be at a minimum you know, if you say you're eight years in, uh, unless it's a guy who's just bl- fallen through the cracks somehow, but a three-year deal for basically any unrestricted free agent is going to take you into your 30s. And for your average player, you're going to, uh, the amount of money it took to get you up front to uh, to win the bidding war, the winner's curse in unrestricted free agency, and now you're going into your 30s as well. It's just really hard to get well, guys on a long-term contract there, that's good there's another massive consideration which is that there are the value contracts that get signed you know like if a player wants to go to a contender those aren't going to be three years you know you're not, those those sorts of the value the guys who you know take a little bit less to go somewhere whether it's you know what david west did with the spurs and the warriors or any number of things those guys just don't sign long contracts because part of what they're getting is the ability to choose their own destiny Oh, so you didn't pick your full-on top three, though? Oh, I did not. Yes. Um, Let's see here. Yeah, Jalen Brown, number one. I'm going to go TJ Warren, number two. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Should it be Warren or Covington? They make basically the same money. Warren is younger, though. Covington's better defensively, but has more of an injury history. I guess I'll go with Warren over Covington. And, it, like, the bigs are tough, too. I mean, it's really... Nobody sticks out to me other than Jalen Brown for the reasons we talked about. I mean, I think, to me, smart... Kleba, Covington, Warren, Sabonis, Turner, all those guys are very, very close to one another, I would say. Yeah, and I'd, th- I'd throw Nurkic in there too, just because I, th- I think yeah, the if, level- if he were healthy, I would agree, yeah. but I he's not, yeah, at least. Um, he was supposed to make his debut on March 15th, so presumably he is healthy now, but it was, I think he, he could have a long road back. I, I the, the broken bone thing is, you know, those usually are better recoveries, but also being 280 is uh, probably a negative there. It's a different a different type of challenge. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and 
producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Anyone who's seen our YouTube videos knows that I don't wear formal stuff all the time. So when it's time to dress up rather than dress down, I highly recommend Inochino. They were the official outfitter of my wedding. I got my tux from there. All my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well. I felt really good about having them be the outfitter of my wedding because all my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly. Because when you go somewhere else, you're not going to get something that's made for you. So why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a show room rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you and not only does indochino have the suits that made them famous but now they've got everything blazers pants women's wear outerwear designed and made for you hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from european wools linen cottons tons of colors tons of patterns you can customize things like the lapel the vents the pockets and you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style. Level up your game with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com. Use the code CAPSPACE. Use the CAPSPACE. We talk about all the time here on the program. You get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's 10% off at Indochino. I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O. Indochino.com. And don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know that you came from us. Okay, let's do a little news before we depart. Not great. Uh, Brian Windhorst uh, said on ESPN, I think it was Friday, that uh, there is a growing pessimism, a significant amount of pessimism on whether the NBA season will resume or not. Part of that, I think, and he did say it was from both sides, so maybe this is being too optimistic for me. I think there is a component of this that might be negotiating from the league because to trigger the force majeure clause that enables them to not pay players, they have to actively cancel games. And they don't want to do that yet because it's just, it would be premature perhaps. I mean, clearly some of the regular season is going to get canceled, but I don't think they want to actually do that. But they can't technically start taking money out of players' contracts until they cancel games with that force majeure clause. And so I think they would like to avoid having to do that, but they also want to threaten it so that they can get this deal with the players where the league wants to take 50% out of players' salaries starting uh, in April and uh, the players only want it to be 25%. Uh, The league taking out 50% of players' salaries now would basically equate to about a 25% drop in revenue, which is about what we have left in the season um, if if they were to continue with that. Uh, I don't know. Any thoughts on that yourself? I, I think that it also could be a recognition that it's going to be a long time time until things get back to any semblance of normal. And there have also been some pieces, I believe Haverstrow had one as well, poking some poking some holes in the bubble idea, the idea of putting everybody in the same place. And it, you know, thinking about, well, when, when could this reasonably happen? And then as the, the NBA does have some time, and that was something Windhorst brought up, they have some runway, but I mean, I think we're looking, we're looking at a longer, a longer time before the logistics of net necessary of getting 
getting 25 people you just think about that of like the teams coming together much less everybody that even if it's a bare bones broadcast and coaches and med and training staffs and video people and everything else i mean it's that that might take some time yeah i mean so much obviously just depends on what is the prevalence of the coronavirus in our overall society and you know it does seem like june is the earliest you might get to a point where it's low enough that this might be worth the risk game i think there's two big components of this number one is just what are the players willing to deal with are they willing to deal with hey you're just going to be quarantined <laughs> like essentially just all you could talk to is your teammates you go to the hotel you go to the arena that's it you can't even see your family you can't see your uh significant and insignificant others uh, well and also <laughs> do we have the testing capacity to to do to pull any of that off yeah i mean that's another thing too i mean i think the hope is that that testing capacity just as a nation will be high enough because yeah you clearly would have to be continuously testing players presumably you would have a test you would have i mean there would have to be a quarantine period before you even went into the quarantine uh after that first test so it would be a lot of sacrificing for the players and maybe them they don't want to do that lebron james uh you know he also said he wouldn't play in front of fans then he back track we'll see how he feels uh, about it if it really becomes the only option uh, if he's just you know he, we'll see i mean this is for teams like the clippers and the Bucks and the lakers who could be championship contenders whether it's worth it to them or not who knows and then there's just the overall question of risk what kind of risk are the league and the players willing to do if there's going to be some risk obviously that some player or, or support staff or whatever could contract it or just that someone who's going in to clean the hotel room rooms for the players uh, would have coronavirus i mean there's i mean there's there's a reason why this is such an interactable problem overall in our society but would the nba be prepared to deal with restarting and then the potential embarrassment and uh, morale deflation if a player or support staff were to test positive and then they had to cancel it again i mean maybe they would just feel like it's so damaging to even deal with the potential of having to start stop it again that it's just not even worth doing speaking of morale deflation you want to talk about the chicago bulls yeah this is one of those where you never thought the day would come that they would actually find a new executive there had been some reports that they might try to bring someone in and going back to even as early as the all-star break where there's talk they wanted to interview chad buchanan who is uh, the right-hand man of kevin pritchard in indiana was previously with him in portland as well but it didn't indicate that this person would be the lead decision maker now the reporting from Woj is that this executive would have full authority but John Paxson will continue in an advisory role basically it seems like anyone with the Bulls has lifetime point even Gar Foreman may uh, stay on in some type of a role and there's a thought that they would at least be requested to reevaluate the coaching staff and scouts um, uh, are the frugal Bulls willing to just move on for people who are already under contract so in theory this is a very attractive job you might have lifetime employment but you also just don't have that ability to come in and clean house we've seen this be a deal breaker like when david griffin was talking about going to the knicks in the wake of phil jackson's departure he wasn't granted that autonomy he was granted it in new orleans and he went there instead and so uh there's a concern to me like for example some of these names michael winger with the clippers uh, who is uh, are you know he turned down supposedly a chance to interview with minnesota and uh justin zanuck with the jazz uh and adam simon the heats assistant gm who's done a lot of their stuff uh, in uh sioux falls that's been so impressive uh simon 
maybe less so, but Zanuck and Winger have, uh, are they going to want to come in if they're not given autonomy? Zanuck's already got burned on that in Milwaukee. Uh, also, Arturis Karnishevis, another one from the Nuggets. Bobby Webster from the Raptors, he's going to be a, a hot candidate. Buchanan has already said that he doesn't want to do it. I'm guessing if they were going to offer him the full GM job with like a real title and his chance to pick people, yeah, he probably would do it. He wouldn't want to stay and be like the number two in Indiana instead. So it seems like this job could be very attractive, but as we've seen with a number of teams, yeah, you're bringing a new executive in, but you're kind of uh, giving him handcuffs at the same time. And so they're not going to be able to get the same quality of candidate. Yeah, it's I I mean, and, and we'll see, I think we'll get a big indication of how much latitude they're getting by who turns the job down and who accepts it. Yeah, I mean, it's like Buchanan, this is the first time he's ever really come up in these discussions. It's not like, I mean, Indiana has done a, a solid job. You know, he came from Charlotte before this. Like, it's not like he's just some unbelievable candidate here you know we're not like winger zanuck like those guys i think are some of the highest level websters or some of the highest level guys from really good organizations but uh to be turned down by buchanan that to me indicates that there are too many strings attached to this job to get the best and i mean i don't know that for sure you know maybe buchanan has other reasons but just uh, reading the tea leaves here that's the indication i get especially with the reporting that they're gonna have to keep a bunch of people uh, around still all right that'll do it for today stay tuned you're gonna bring in ben here to talk about the uh, our uh, daily covid19 podcast and but remember that's gonna be switching to its own feed you can see where that is it's pinned now to the top of my tour but it's not up on itunes and some of the other podcast players yet spotify it will be this week but if you want to flip that over uh you can find the rss feed in the link that's uh, pinned to the top of my twitter profile and we'll talk to you tomorrow night till then so this is our first episode of the coronavirus daily podcast on its own feed so please subscribe to this it may not be on itunes quite yet we submitted it over the weekend but hopefully it'll be up there in the next couple of days but tell your friends about this if you think it, it's worthwhile. If you're listening to this on Dunked On, it'll be on there for a couple days more, but we wanted to spin this off, let it be its own thing, and I'm going to be joined here by Ben Taylor. How are you doing? I am hanging in there. I'm excited to have our own feed. <laughs> <laughs> Just didn't want to have to share with Danny anymore, huh? It was awkward. You know, <laughs> we share that same seat in the office and so, so if you're listening here to this for the first time, basically the idea of this is Ben and I, uh, I think we're really the only ones that I know of who are doing this right now because most journalists have their own stories to write, their own podcasts where they'll maybe do interviews or look at one topic. Our goal here is we're reading all of the coronavirus news and relaying the most important stories to you from the USA, from the world, scientific developments about the virus. And we're spending hours and hours a day doing that research. So you don't have to. So you can listen to this and hopefully feel secure that you've gotten the most important updates and you can go about your life. So uh, you can check out some of the previous episodes. I think most of them still hold up pretty well, but we do this five days a week. Sunday through Thursday is probably going to be it. Usually in the afternoons is when these are going to come out. So... What do we got to start with here, Ben? I think the, as of, you know, right before we're recording this on Sunday, the, the breaking news is that British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is headed to the hospital. Uh, if you recall, about 10 days ago, he tested positive. That was that was big news. And now uh, the reports are saying here he's headed there with, quote unquote, persistent symptoms. Yeah. And that's generally the timeline that we've seen. We've talked about that on past episodes where 
about seven days after you first get symptoms that's when on average when people start needing to be hospitalized or things get worse it's obviously a race between your immune system and the virus and so this is very troubling for mr johnson obviously but it's also kind of just about what most of these patients are going through here that's really the time to be worried is that kind of six to nine day sort of timeline after you start developing symptoms yeah we've we've certainly heard from a lot of uh, celebrities athletes people who have cleared their symptoms earlier and that's what you want and in this case 10 days in and it almost feels like uh, for us working in sports like a bad injury you don't want to speculate i don't really in the reports as of recording this i don't have any other information um so hopefully it's just you know shortness of breath nothing too severe or whatnot but um yeah 10 10 days later after the symptoms headed to the hospital the other big story i would say at this point is the cdc recommending now masks for everyone and many would criticize this as an overdue step we talked to on a previous episode of how it seemed like a little bit of this was paternalism and that they didn't want people using the few available n95 masks and that they also didn't want people thinking oh i have a mask now i can go out in public i'm good but clearly it seems like any sort of return to an open economy is going to require at least as an interim step everyone wearing masks in public now yeah i think this is a step in the right direction as we've discussed if this is your first time listening and the now that now that we have our own feed uh we will go back and in the future at times we will say here's here's the available scientific research that we're getting we summarize that on masks and the takeaway uh, a few episodes ago when we did this was that masks even though they're not foolproof can be very helpful they, they have some ability to reduce invasive particles when you're out in public and so we talked about this sort of messaging that the uh higher powers if you will have had and this is a trend we're seeing globally kind of a a lot of countries around the world are recommending this and now the united states on board as well and i have to say on a positive note uh, here in southern california when i go out people wearing masks galore uh, even if it's homemade or whatnot so this may be becoming a little bit more of a, a of a trend even though there was that i like the way you put that the the uh, parentalization of this issue the paternalization of this issue about a month ago yeah and cloth masks aren't as effective as the n95 masks that healthcare professionals are relying on but they do do something in particular to prevent people who many of whom may be asymptomatic but still have the virus from transmitting it to others because it does occur uh, within these very small droplets uh, that go through the air um we've seen so much uh, it's become a, a meme a joke everywhere it's oh everyone is just buying up toilet paper it's so ridiculous that everyone is doing that these shortages everyone is hoarding and it's difficult to know how much of that is actually occurring but it's also important to know that we've had these major changes in the way that we're living our lives and even if there's not a shortage of goods in the overall economy that can explain why there might be a shortage of goods in stores yeah, so this was a uh, credit to a Medium post from, I'm probably going to butcher this name, Will Oramus, and he basically talks about how, look, 
your toilet paper that you get at home is one separate supply chain. It's packaged in neat bundles. It's got six or 12 rolls or whatever. It's designed for you to pick up and carry home. And not all the toilet paper in the world is distributed like that. There are other kinds of toilet paper, namely that go to offices and public places and you know areas of commerce. And that is a completely different supply chain of toilet paper. And it's a completely different kind of toilet paper. It doesn't arrive in these neat packets. So people are used to spending their time at work and out in public and and now they're at home and so they naturally need to increase their own consumption and and so Nate we don't have to get into necessarily the particulars of toilet paper itself but you and I both felt this was a larger issue around sort of reacting and organizing your supply lines when things change Absolutely. And you can look at food as an obvious one as well. I'm not sure what the percentage is nationwide for us in the U.S. here of what percentages of meals are eaten outside of the home uh, and are not cooked at home, whether it's uh, eating, you know, going to grab lunch when you're at work or going out to dinner or ordering takeout. You know, is that 25% of consumption? Is that 40% of consumption, who knows? But now everybody's food consumption is basically occurring with stuff that is bought out of a grocery store. A few places are still offering takeout, but I would imagine that that's way down certainly to what people used to do eating out in restaurants. And so think of all the you know, your sushi grade tuna at the sushi restaurant or these awesome steaks uh, that get sent to Ruth's Chris that you're probably not going to get at a Safeway, that kind of thing. All of that was consumption that now if we're going to be at home for a long time, in theory needs to be rerouted to grocery stores, right. certainly. The, and then you throw in the idea that a lot of people are thinking, not only am I going to be eating at home more, but hey, it'd be nice to, these are uncertain times. It'd be nice to have, you know, I don't need six months of foods, but it nice, might be nice to have six weeks of food. Uh, and that's why you've had shortage. I think in California, maybe it's been more acute than a lot of places. I haven't seen as many of these reports uh, elsewhere, but uh, you know, whether it's, yeast for uh baking which we we haven't been able to get any of that and then or flour (laughs) sure sure i mean there's a a lot of stuff so this is we've seen over the last probably 20 years or so this change in distribution where your companies are trying to save on warehousing they're trying to because one big risk for you as a company is you buy all this stuff and then demand is different than you think it's going to be and then you're not able to sell it or you have to sell it at a discount and then you're also paying a bunch of money in a warehouse to store these goods so just in time delivery was okay from the producer to the point of sale we're gonna reduce the amount of time that it takes to get there we're gonna be faster about getting these goods places but we're also not gonna have excess capacity if demand changes in a very very large way and so very many sectors of our economy are facing that and uh, another one of those that's facing that is with uh, a lot of drugs as well yeah i mean just on the food thing as you were talking through that think about how many people eat lunch just as part of their daily work near and around their office. Not everyone brings a lunch in. Um, That's going to be a huge chunk of food right there. I I think, and we can segue in because it affects more than food, as you just mentioned, but the challenge I see here economically, and you and I actually spoke about this in one of our first episodes, when you have systems that are designed to be optimized for a specific set of conditions and they're running near 90% capacity or whatever it is, they're trying to trim all the fat on the margins. You you alluded to just-in-time delivery. If that system is very rigid in terms of applying to just those set of parameters and then you 
change the set of parameters, the short of it is that we've got all these resources and they're still out there, but we don't really have any mechanisms to route them in the right directions. And so all of a sudden you go from optimization to waste very quickly. What's the situation there with some of those drugs? We spoke to, spoke about it a couple episodes ago in Detroit, shortages in the hospital, but I think you had some more coming through this week, same kind of thing, right? Yeah, a lot of this based on, on a New York Times article from a, a couple of days ago, but not only is it just ventilators, masks, PPE, but it's all the other things that are used to take care of these patients as well that hospitals don't have. If you're going to intubate someone, they need to be sedated. And they're running out of the first order drugs that they like to use that. They said they're on, uh, one quote was that we're on our third and fourth order drugs where mm. th these sedatives are longer acting. And so it's hard to get someone uh, off of being sedated uh, when you want that to end. Uh, pain relief. I mean, that's a, a huge one as well, you, even for just you know, people who are not going to recover, but just to be more comfortable uh, as, I mean, and these are awful, awful deaths that you're having. You're basically drowning because you can't breathe in a lot of these cases. And so uh, to, and you're already not dying with your family around you due to the, due to the virus. And now you, it, to be in a situation where you can't even be sedated properly, you can't even have a, a painkiller. You're, you're obviously, you're going to be panicking if you can't breathe at the end of your life. I mean, that's, these shortages are going to lead to not only not being able to take care of patients, but for people who can't be saved, it's going to lead to awful deaths for them. It's really, I, uh, I, I think it, it's really sobering. Yeah. I think it, I think it was Andy Slavitt on Twitter, who we've alluded to before is doing a lot of great uh, work in terms of pumping out information. And I hope I'm getting him right. It was one of those huge guys that we reference a lot. He used to work in end of life sort of palliative care. Uh, no, I think it was uh, Christakis, actually. Oh, yes, yes. Thank you. It was Christakis. Okay, fantastic. I thought you might have seen that. So he, he has this whole thing you can check out on his Twitter where he talks about all of the dynamics of the different situations in easing kind of pain and suffering in these situations, whether you're going to recover or not. So th this is a, another example of, you know, being able to get these supply lines right and being able to get these resources to hospitals, uh, making a huge difference for people who are in these situations that are already, you know, pretty ugly to begin with. Some stats on that. Uh, Premier Incorporated, which is a healthcare improvement company, they did a survey of 377 hospitals and 100 long-term care home infusion and retail pharmacies. And they found that in these acute care settings, 70% of respondents have reported at least one shortage for drugs that are being used to, to help not necessarily treat coronavirus, but some of these ancillary drugs uh, as well. 48% uh, of the long-term care facilities, home care, retail pharmacies uh, reported shortages. And uh, in New York, California, Washington, uh, the demand uh, is even higher, uh, apparently. So I don't know what what we're going to do. I mean, I don't know how, how much we have in terms of stockpiles, what alternatives there are to these drugs but this is yet another instance of why the flattening the curve uh, is so important and was so important because we'll uh every aspect of the supply chain is going to be tested and i think it's just it's there's so many things we're, we're going to have bottlenecks uh, for all of these uh, and the higher the number of the cases the more of those will emerge yeah and and you found this 
wild story out of Illinois in the last few days, which just seems like this innocuous random story. But we were talking about it. It's kind of like, oh, this is another symptom of what happens when your basic supply lines and sort of infrastructure break down. Do you want to describe um, what what happened there in Chicago, in the Illinois area with uh, this, this multi-million dollar check? It's insane. It, the hookup that the state of Illinois had, they could have created these special procurement units. I think the phrase knows a guy was used in the story. <laughs> and this woman who worked for the state of Illinois had to jump in her car in Springfield to get to the Chicago area. There was a deadline where uh, if they didn't get a check to the bank by 2 p.m., they were going to give these masks, uh, uh, 1.5 million N95 masks in China, were going to go to some other bidder. So this woman gets in her car, drives up I-55 with how a three- How far is that drive? Like three and a half hours probably with a 3.4 million dollar check and meets this dude in the parking lot of a mcdonald's in dwight illinois and uh got it to it with 20 minutes to spare but this is the herculean efforts that and i mean let's keep in mind right like this is a successful one imagine if you had to go through all that and you didn't even get them because someone else had a faster car and got to the mcdonald's parking lot <laughs> earlier right i mean it's it seems and we're hearing all sorts of stories like this is anecdotal obviously yeah. and sensationalistic but i think it is indicative of the crazy stuff that's going on here now and we're just we're gonna be screwed here for a while with a lot of these supply chains but it's just the only choice now i think is to invest in finding a way that you might say oh well you know we're gonna flatten the curve this won't be an issue going forward well number one i think we need to domesticate a lot of this supply have the ability to ramp up for a any future outbreaks but b if there's another outbreak of this when we try to reopen or if there's a spike in the fall as some have speculated uh we, we just there's so many things this is a stress test for all of these supply chains here yeah i mean we talked about it a couple episodes ago in terms of how do we move forward once we sort of get our head above water so to speak and we're not drowning these are the kinds of things that we have to put in place for the sort of medium term future or preventing uh, another spike or an outbreak down the road whether it's next season or something like that while we're on money uh, shall we quickly provide an update on the stimulus checks absolutely Okay, so uh, this is from the Associated Press, just some messaging coming out of the White House. The direct deposit checks, we've talked about them before on the show, uh, they are estimated to be sent out starting April 13th, which is a little over a week from recording this. And those, again, if you are eligible and you qualify 2018-2019 tax returns with direct deposit, those will just be sent to you automatically. Some more information that we didn't have last time, uh, they have said the paper check issuing will begin on May 4th, a couple weeks later, and they're going to send out an estimated 5 million checks a week in the paper checks. And at least the Associated Press article was saying, if you run the numbers on how many checks there are, that could take up to 20 weeks. So uh, like half of the summer for those paper checks to actually get out, which I imagine is a bummer for a lot of people, since what is the point of issuing checks if they don't actually get to you for four months? Yeah, well, I guess it's better than not issuing checks. And there also are direct deposit options as well, in theory. So um, 
let's turn now to just some news around the u.s just in general we've talked many times about the limitations of using a case uh, as a number but it's what we have 332,000 confirmed cases in the united states uh, and coming up now on 10,000 deaths uh, 9,500 deaths this is as of sunday afternoon in the u.s what's it looking like in new york right now so New York had its worst day yesterday, its worst 24-hour period yet, 630 deaths on record in the state of New York. And I was curious as to how this sort of lines up with what they would call like all, all-cause all mortality or when you just look at typical deaths from every cause in the state. And according to uh, C- CDC, the New York state typically has 417 deaths a day, at least in 2017 if you look at the average. And in this case, there isn't a lot of variability in the average either. It's not like 50 deaths on one day and 10,000 on another day. Um, There's some variability in months, but pretty similar. And so that starts to put into perspective if they're saying things are going to get worse, the next week is going to get worse, the numbers are continuing to go up. This is just from COVID-19 where you're eclipsing your total deaths from any, you know, accident, suicide, anything um, in a 24-hour period yesterday. We're already about 50% higher than that normal number. Some good news, I think, is uh, that Governor Cuomo in New York announced that they are now trying to pool resources across the state, basically having the hospital system in New York be one giant network. They are going to be rerouting workers to the places where they are needed. And that's great in New York. I, I would hope that we could get a national system to do that same thing. Yeah, yeah, and I think, you know, injecting a little commentary here, that's exactly what we we're talking about earlier with economic supply chains. It's going to take reworking our current infrastructures to solve some of these novel problems. Yeah, and maybe you would say, well, the market can respond to that, but I would think that federal coordination, and we, we've seen more of that happening in other countries, uh, would be a boon to those efforts uh, at a minimum if it were uh, well done. You also had some news you wanted to talk about, I, I, and this is something that's been interesting to me too, of you know uh, the American quote-unquote lockdown is not the same as it's been in other countries. We still have flights. There's some voluntary guidelines. I don't think anywhere in the U.S. has said you're just not allowed to leave your home. You know, you can kind of go go out for for exercise, and there also is very very little enforcement. You know, I, I haven't I'm not aware of any stories in the U.S. I haven't looked that hard for them of just people being stopped and questioned about you know why you're out. And you know, I don't know whether we need to do that or not, uh, but it does seem like there's a little bit less of a reduction activity here as in some of these states in Europe and in East Asia that have uh, been a little more stringent about enforcement. Yeah, so we got some Google data on that, uh, courtesy of the New York Post. By the way, before I give you that data, there was at least one instance, I think two days ago, of like a kayaker being uh, fined and ticketed um, down here near Malibu or something off the coast. So very rare statewide to to hear instances of any kind of enforcement like yeah, that. Yeah, there, there have been a few in places where there's just, you, you, you're you clearly not going to work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> to, to your essential job. Yes, uh, the, of kayaking uh, in the middle of the day. But basically, the Google data looked at um, 
cell phone activity. It, lo- it looked at basically all of the information that they had and concluded that New York, uh, or excuse me, concluded that places in New York like Manhattan, um, Queens, Brooklyn, they have their activity is down. People are going out less, but it's not to the same extreme that you saw in European countries that were hit really hard, like Italy and Spain. So for instance, if Italy and Spain had, you know, transit activity decreased 90 something percent in New York, it's 80% in Manhattan. Uh, They go to the parks 80% less in Manhattan. And then some of these other areas, we talked about it recently, some of these potentially lower income areas, uh, the activity is even, the decrease is even less. So Queens and Brooklyn, it's like 50% decreased activity in parks. Pretty, Pretty big difference compared to Europe still. Yeah, and I'm not prepared to say whether that's good or bad. It could well be that if you're just going to a park and you got an appropriate amount of distance between you and the other people who are there, that that's fine. Or it's a low enough transmission risk that it's worth it to be able to go to a park uh, and not go completely insane in your tiny apartment in Queens or whatever. Um, But there is a difference. And even in Italy, we've seen a slow, encouraging reduction, but maybe not as quickly as we did uh in hubei province uh, in china where the lockdown is even more extreme than in italy so my hope is just that the perhaps lighter lockdown in the u.s doesn't also lead to uh, a slower quelling uh, of the epidemic um this is kind of good news in boston the boston herald reported that a company called Battelle, uh, a, a defense contractor has created a machine that can sterilize 80,000 n95 masks per day using hydrogen peroxide that has now been approved by the FDA. So it does seem like we are starting to find some ways when, you know, in quote unquote peacetime, you have an N95 mask costs $2. It's a lot easier to just get another one when you're treating all these patients than uh, to sterilize it and potentially have some issues with that or have to take it somewhere or whatever. But it does seem like now here in wartime, it is possible to reuse these masks at least to some degree. And that hopefully uh, once these symptoms get ramped up, whether it's oven whether it's uv light we've seen a nebraska hospital doing that whether it's this machine that will find a way to reuse these enough to ease the mask shortage yeah that's an encouraging i mean as we've discussed they are uh, often cleaning these things or trying to reuse them in general in local instances but to be able to do that at scale or for an entire medical service where you could come back the next day and have fresh masks or clean masks that were uh, safe to use again nice nice potential development there i want to talk about this just because we hit on it before the captain of the uss theodore roosevelt was removed after writing a letter he sent it to over 20 recipients over a non-classified email system basically saying that uh, he was really concerned about the conditions on the the aircraft carrier which was near guam and he wanted to help get sailors off and uh, he was removed from command and now uh, friends uh, have told the media that he actually has tested positive for coronavirus himself uh, he started showing s- symptoms on thursday which is when he was removed this is when i i talked to a lot of uh, people that i know in the military about this uh, and my take on this is essentially that he did the right thing i totally understand why he did that but that he also had to be removed at the same time because it just you he went outside of his chain of command to complain when you're in the military that's 
kind of what you do is you just you have to deal with your chain of command doing a bad job clearly they did they weren't getting the soldiers off or their sailors off quickly enough but i think he knew that he was this was the deal that he was going to face consequences for doing this like you can't go outside your chain of command you can't transmit something that relates to military readiness in an unclassified way and so i think he did the right thing he sacrificed himself but in a military organization you just can't have these types of of leaks and because if any commander were able to do that when he didn't think his superiors were doing the right thing or doing enough then you would just have utter chaos so i i feel for him i understand why he got that great send-off from his sailor sailors but i also completely understand why he was removed um i think clearly his chain of command didn't do a good enough job they should have done a better job but when you're in the military you just can't do that well do we Um, know is anything happening now uh in terms of the the way the sailors are being handled or testing or yeah no the the, i mean it seemed like he definitely affected some action i think 2700 sailors uh we talked about on a previous show uh, were actually being taken off the ship so uh it, it seems like his actions absolutely had an effect which is good but uh i this this is just kind of i don't think there's a way around this I, I know a lot of people are saying that he shouldn't have been removed but i i do understand why that happened but i also understand why he wrote the letter and i applaud him for writing the letter i, I hope that doesn't seem inconsistent to people but um it makes sense to me uh, yeah yeah it's a sticky spot <laughs> maybe let's let's leave it at that yeah I, I mean and i certainly it's not like this isn't an easy thing i to, completely understand if people disagree with me uh, on this um but and then quickly in california gavin newsom it seems like things are improving in terms of slowing the coronavirus pandemic uh a lot of those pending tests came in and a, a huge number of them were negative way more than you'd expect but there hasn't really been an explanation yet uh, about why the well we know why the testing was slowed down so much but there hasn't been an explanation of whether it was those tests were bad because they were pending for so long and there's a, a certain amount of time that were after which those samples aren't viable unless they've been frozen but one thing that newsom did say is he expects that a shortage in terms of care will happen in may a shortage of up to sixteen thousand hospital beds uh and he said these these stats should not give people immediate hope and they he's basing it on models but it is at least encouraging that they're not going to run out of hospital beds in the next week yeah Um, i i I am i am feeling fairly good given the size of california uh, about the trajectory so far relative to other places and uh, out here we were pretty early to lock down so in theory that should also uh you know suppress your sort of exponential growth as you go forward in time Uh, but we'll see we'll see Let's shift now to the news around the world. We already talked about uh, Boris Johnson. What's uh, stuck out to you here worldwide? Well, Italy, as we've mentioned, is continuing to have some level of decline uh, and slowdown. Although a very interesting report coming out of uh, the Bergamo region of Italy, where I believe they had something like uh, five or six times the number of people in, again, going back to that all-cause mortality, just the number of people who died in the region in March this year 
versus last year. So last year it is last year, 900 people in the region died in March and this year it was 5,400. But uh, Nate, only about 2,000 of them were officially from coronavirus. So you want to speak maybe a little bit more about what was going on there? Yeah, a study by a local newspaper, uh, Echo de Bergamo, and a research consultant, they estimated, uh, as you said, that uh, 5,400 people died in the province. And of those, it believes that as many as 4,500 people, which is double the official tally, yeah. uh, died due to the coronavirus. It took into account a bunch of people who died in nursing homes. There was a, a report that many of the deaths that didn't occur in hospitals were, at least at this point, not being counted yet as coronavirus deaths. I don't think that there was anything that was sinister about that. It's just that they're no, no, no. They, they may be focusing more on on the ones that happen in hospitals because there's a reporting structure there. It's maybe it's a lot harder to confirm that someone died of coronavirus outside of a hospital, especially if they didn't necessarily present at a hospital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The article was saying that basically you had all of this at home care, and if doctors couldn't make it or if people couldn't get to the hospital, you ended up with a lot of at home deaths. And those not, weren't necessarily part of the official tally, maybe maybe for reasons as simple as they didn't test positive. And so uh, inside the article, they mentioned that you just constantly have all these cases that were fatalities and the cause of death was uh, basically some kind of pneumonia, interstitial pneumonia or whatever it is. What else we got here? Um, Spain is extending its lockdown for 15 days uh, out until April 26th. That's per Reuters. Uh, and in Spain, also uh, an incredibly hard hit region. The rate of official infection is finally slowing down there as well. Um, just something to keep an eye on in Greece. Greece is quarantining an, an Afghan man who basically is living in a refugee camp near Athens. Um, over 100,000 migrant facility, or there are over 100,000 sort of refugees in these facilities across five Greek islands. And in the last few years, Greece has been a, a huge place for people to uh, escape difficult conditions in the Middle East. And so one of these situations, like we talked about with India last week, where you have a lot of people huddled together, and if you potentially have an outbreak there, um, something that you have to handle very carefully to prevent it from, from really uh, spreading like wildfire. We haven't talked that much about Iran, and they were one of the earlier hit countries, especially at the ministerial level. And they are going to have somewhat of a reopening on April 11th. They say uh, that low-risk economic activities will resume uh, on Saturday, April 11th, and that two-thirds of Iranian government employees will be working in the office uh, beginning uh, on Saturday. We still don't have a great idea of the outbreak there. They're not the most open society in the world uh but this could be a test to see if they reopen i mean i hadn't really gotten an impression that things are particularly under control there we've had a lot of reports about how people were ignoring orders not to travel uh during the persian new year uh, within the last couple of weeks and maybe this is just a response by the government to reopen because they feel like people can't take it anymore uh, as opposed to based on actual health advice it doesn't seem like they've done anything special to lock this down and control it and it doesn't seem like any other countries who haven't reported uh, except those who have done like just an awesome job uh maybe like denmark which we talked about or, or south korea are thinking about opening around this time so based on what we know this doesn't seem to make a lot of sense that they'd be reopening but yeah there this this could be i mean we're gonna see these data points all over the world as we try to figure out what's gonna happen to us in the u.s uh, there are a lot of different ways that countries are managing this, this 
this crisis for better or for worse. I mean, it is a bit curious. I, I think for me, Iran is one of those countries where uh, I'm not sure how much you can trust official data per se. Um, and so I, I, it's just unclear exactly what has changed there to, you know, maybe they think they have it under control sufficiently. Um, and we'll see. And to your point, different countries are going to have sort of different trade-offs or levels of relaxed standards. Standards is not the right word. Um, conditions is probably a better word for when they're saying, okay, we're going to we're gonna reopen because we've hit a threshold that we feel comfortable with. But yeah, I mean, something to keep an eye on. I'm not really sure um, what has gone on. Just as an example, in Iraq, right? Iraq, there's some controversy because they've, they've kicked Reuters out for a while because Reuters had a report this week saying that Iraq's undercount their cases. The official ca ca case count is like 770, and Reuters was saying that there are actually somewhere between three and 8,000 test, uh, positive tested cases there. So, I, I mean, not to completely connect those two countries, but they're all in the same area. There are outbreaks happening. It's kind of unclear to me, at least, uh, why Iran would do this, but you know, maybe things are under control, something to keep an eye on, and, and maybe they can get back to business. Brazil, we've talked about them a few times uh, and some of the statements by Bolsonaro saying that Brazilians should get back to work except for old people. And he is, has come under fire there, but it was worth noting that a poll from Brazil recently showed that 59% would oppose him resigning. And the case count right now in Brazil, a little over 10,000 and 431 deaths. Again, the, the uh, I think for me, deaths, hospitalization, people in the ICU, if in fact even those numbers are reliable, I count on those a little bit more than cases just because of the variability yeah. in testing from place to place. Yeah, and, and just to be clear, because um, we do have international listeners, uh, I don't think we're suggesting there's tomfoolery. These numbers are very difficult to peg. And just for instance, in Brazil, if you had 10,000 official cases, uh, the, the degree of your testing capacity really, really informs that. We've talked about this before. If you're only testing people who meet certain conditions or over 65 or heavily symptomatic or something like that, it's going to change those official num numbers. And as we just talked about in Italy, even the way you do your housekeeping um, in the middle of the pandemic as things are going on, you know, you're, you're, there's a lot of chaos potentially. So uh, these numbers are signals and the signals are not always super reliable or accurate as this is unfolding. Another smaller country in Europe that's looking like it might be a little bit of a success story so far is Austria. They've a little under 12,000 noted cases, uh, but they reported that there were more newly recovered than newly diagnosed patients and a declining number of people in intensive care, which uh, again, I think that's a pretty decent metric uh, for uh, how this is coming along. Um, on Sunday, their number of new cases rose by 270 and the number of recoveries was 491, according to their health ministry. And Chancellor Sebastian Kurz said, if we all remain disciplined during Easter week, I am confident that we will be able to gradually and cautiously return to normality after Easter. Austria had closed in a pretty much normal European style lockdown, closed all shops, schools, universities, public gathering places, uh, etc. And they will also make the use of face masks in grocery stores obligatory starting this week. Last international story I wanted to hit on was Singapore. Uh, of course, small island nation, five and a half million people. And they have been considered largely a success story in managing this. But cases have 
uh, ballooned-ish for them, hitting oh, just over 1,300 as of recording this. That's a tenfold increase in the March m- month of March, and the cases case numbers for them have doubled in the last 10 days. And so as a result, they are sort of uh, tightening some restrictions over there. What they've noticed, and this is from their Ministry of Health, they're tracking cases and they've noticed transmission mainly coming from what they describe as social interactions, workplace interactions, and family settings. And so they're saying, look, just go back to, we're going to put a four-week lockdown in place, very much what we're seeing here in the States and in the rest of the world, essential services only, food takeout will stay open, but otherwise just stay at home, only have contact with the people you live with and your family. Uh, And they also are switching to a wear masks initiative. Um, They will provide reusable masks, distributing them to citizens this week. Yeah, that's a, a sobering one where you see countries that in theory had things under control having to now either go back to or institute some of these pretty draconian measures. And while we have uh, all of this hope for, in theory, uh, all the things that we talked about last week of how do we get out of this? Well, we're going to get the cases so low that we can now test everything and then we can slowly open things back up. And in Singapore, the resources that they have seems to have been doing as good a job as you could hope to be doing and yet and you know they still have had people flying in from other places too which probably you know that's the one thing that maybe it wouldn't be happening uh as we try to reopen back up but overall if everything that singapore has been doing isn't enough you're kind of like man like that's that doesn't augur too well for the rest of us here yeah, but I, I do think it speaks to their sensitivity as a small nation thinking, look, we are we have the ability to, even in the long run, prevent widespread infection. And so, yeah. all, right, all it takes for them is a few hundred cases over the course of a week or two for the alarm to sound and to switch to DEFCON 2 or even DEFCON 1. Yeah. On the other hand, you might say that when you have a couple hundred cases, that's when you should do that. So, I I, I mean, this is, again, nobody nobody knows exactly what all the right answers are here. But for me, I it's much easier for me intellectually to be like, okay, here's what's worked somewhere else. Just do this. And when that doesn't work, then that caused cause you to bring some of those assumptions into question um last thing here this is a study of transmission uh, that showed that there are some pre-symptomatic transmissions going back to singapore and this one particular method of transmission stood out to me that they had seven different clusters that, that they looked at but two patients tourists from wuhan arrive in singapore on january 19th they had symptom onset on january 22nd and january 24th When they arrived on the 19th, they visited a local church and then three other people attended that church and subsequently developed symptoms. One of the patients simply occupied the same seat in the church that the initial patients from Wuhan had occupied earlier in the day. This was captured by a closed circuit camera. So that is just, and clearly this is, this type of transmission has happened thousands of times over, hundreds of thousands of times over maybe, but just say, yeah, you later in the day sat in a seat where these people who weren't even symptomatic yet sat. That's crazy. Like that's enough, but uh, that's what we're dealing with here. Yeah. Well, if you, if you shed the virus and then you leave what they call fomites, which we've talked about, and that's sitting in the seat or you touch it or you touch the seat in front of you, the seat back in front of you, and then you touch your face, 
your mouth, your nose, these, these things that apparently we touch hundreds of times a day. I don't, I don't, I mean, I'm the behavior guy. I should have these numbers. I don't have these numbers, but we touch our face a lot and that's all it takes. Yeah. So I thought, I mean, we've had a lot of these discussions about, okay, here's how the virus was transmitted. But I just thought even that one instance where you have video evidence of here's what this person did to sit in this seat and get the virus. I thought like that's uh, and then you you multiply that by how many cases that we have now over a million worldwide. It's yeah, pretty incredible. Yeah, um, yeah. I was just Go gonna ahead. say there's there's a similar one uh, out of Wuhan where they had the closed circuit TV on a bus. And it was one of these, you know, maybe a two-hour bus ride or something like that. And you could see the similar thing where you had the uh, person shedding or infected that they knew about in one seat. And then you could map the people in different seats and, you know, someone like 15 or 20 feet in front of them became infected. And whether that's from coughing, we've talked about that and the distance of it or touching handles or things like that. Uh, And then, you know, you're off the bus and and you're off and spreading. Well, this has been a fun show. We do have some some better news that we'll we'll get to in future episodes, but I mean, you know, this isn't this isn't exactly a sunny topic. Uh, I'm afraid. So yeah, that's, uh, you can't that, win them all. Some some shows are yeah. some shows are up. Some shows are down. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks so much for listening. If you want to support this, we are uh, ad free at the moment. But uh, my Patreon, patreoncom slash Larue is probably the best way for you to support this uh, right now. You can follow Ben and I on Twitter. I'm at Nate Duncan NBA. Ben is uh, at L-G-E-L-G-E-E 35. 35. And, and we will uh, talk to you. I'll be back tomorrow. Ben will be back in a couple of days. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.